Lovely listeners, welcome back. I'm Jeannie Phillips, and on this episode, I get to talk about The Last Quintista, a book by Donna Barba Higuera. It's a fantastic middle grades book that touches on the tension between technology and organic life, duty and desire, along with what we know about identity and how we know it. It's also a book that asks us questions like, how are you keeping the young people in your life plugged in and growing? And... Do you know the stories they tell about themselves? And most importantly, do you know how to help them tell those stories? My guest today is Ornella Mata Figueroa. She works to support storytellers out of trauma with Safe Art out of Chelsea, Vermont. She's also part of the Vermont Education Coalition. This is Vermont Ed Reads, a show about books by, for, and with Vermont educators. Let's chat. Thank you so much for joining me, Ornella. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Okay. My name is Ornella Mata, and I'm coming to you from the Education Coalition, also co-director of Safe Art, which is a nonprofit based out of Chelsea. And we address trauma in communities through creative expression and storytelling. I can't think of anybody more perfect than to talk about this book, The Last Quintista. But before we get to this one, what are you reading? right now, Anella? Right now, I'm revisiting Teaching to Transgress. So I've been revisiting Bell Hook's Teaching to Transgress and seeing it with these eyes that have gone through the pandemic and have lived the last six years. It's a totally different experience. I'm trying to figure out how do we create liberatory classrooms. So that's my work of the moment. We can always learn more from Bell Hooks, I find. Every time I reread her, I have a new full body learning experience. Same. Absolutely. Well, let's, um, as tempting as it would be to talk about bell hooks right now, let's um, let's come back to (laughs) The Last Quintista, which is a book that starts at the very beginning of this book. We know that the world as we know it is ending. Um, a comet is going to strike um, planet Earth, uh, and, and the year is like 2060-something. And I wondered if you wanted to just give our listeners a little snapshot of who our main character is and, and what's happening in her life. Uh, so I, how old is Petra Peña? I, I think she's like 13. She's 13 or 14 years old. I think she's right on the cusp. She's like 13. Yes. So we have Petra. And the book opens up with storytelling and this uh, very moving goodbye between Petra and her grandmother. And there is a lot of, you know, what is anticipation of what is going to happen next? What is it that we have to do? We start and see the relationship between Petra and her family. And we start to understand uh, the earth as, as it is a, a little bit, you know, prophetic almost in a sense of, ooh, a lot of this introduction 
sounds a lot like the worsening of the earth of today. <laughs> and yeah, so the main character is Petra. And yeah. we meet Petra's family in the beginning of the story. I would, I would say that. And Lita, her grandmother, is a storyteller. And, um, yes. and Petra aspires to be like her when she grows up. Uh, a lot of and, inner conflicts we're seeing between the family, what, who Petra wants to be versus who her family wants her to be. Yeah. While all of this chaos is happening and they're trying, you know, they've been selected. And there's also this nuance of who gets to live and who gets to die. And a lot Say of more about stuff. the selected. What are they selected to do, Petra and her family? They're selected to be leaving Earth in one of these shuttles that's supposed to be, you know, going to repopulate or, you know, populate a different planet after yeah. being in cryostasis and like all of this kind of technology it's definitely a sci-fi novel yeah i would call it speculative fiction right it's got this um, yeah it's got this sci-fi fantasy feel sci-fi more than fantasy and this um, the world is ending of edge to it a little bit too did you say dystopian edge yeah yeah. yeah, to me, it has a little bit of that dystopian edge. Yes. But what's unique about it is it's so rooted in um, the traditional storytelling of her family, the cuentos her grandmother, Lita, shares with her. It's so rooted in um, sort of uh, ancestral wisdom, for lack of a better word. So it's got this like Absolutely. futuristic and this past. Mm-hmm. And something I noticed was that the values that the cuentos reinforce are all really beautiful values. Even in, in the edges, there's a way in which Petra's retelling of the story is even like in a healthier context than her grandmother. As we hear her interpretations and how she's kind of like in the future in the story frames the context of what's happening to the people she then story tells to. It, it, right. you know, like with kindness and the priority of like, you know, Los Viejos and everybody went to the Viejos to ask for advice. And there's this way in which service and uh, compassion and gratitude is kind of like a framework in how the storytelling is, is shared or like the morals underneath the storytelling. Whew. I love that. I hadn't thought about it in that way because they're, those stories operate on so many layers and it starts with just, um, and you said before we started recording, the whole book is Petra grieving in um, gentle and not so gentle ways. The whole book is a grieving for, for Lita, who's being left behind for this planet, this place that she loves and um, for humanity as, right. as she knows the it. Life she gonna have. All of it. And so there's a way in which part of her grieving is to hold on to the stories. Part of her way of mourning Lita is to hold on to the stories and to want to be like her. And her grandmother gives her some really great advice. I thought she says, you have to make your stories your own. 
And I was struck by this concept of stories changing over time and about how we use the wisdom of folk tales and um, sort of our family stories and our, um, our, the stories from our, uh, from our peoples, from our backgrounds, from our, right. And how we adapt them for a modern world or for a changing world. Mm -hmm. When I think about stories here, it's so interesting because something I've noticed very recently is that if we don't have the story to make ourselves good as a human being, based on the choices that we make, we don't. There's a way in which the stories that we're even told about ourselves, that we tell people really shapes how we reflect and mirror and observe ourselves. And yes, there's so much beauty in this book and how it honors the ancestry and also allows for the creativity to give the community what it needs for the community to be healthy and to be able to see themselves or whatever wholeness they need to see. You're really inspiring me, Ornella, to think about how um, when I work with schools, when we at the Terran Institute work with schools, we often encourage them to, to start the year with identity, with questions of who am I and who do I want to become? And this book holds all of that. Who am I? Who are my people? Who, what are my passions and um, what are the values of my upbringing? And who do I want to be in the world? And how does that help me be the person I want to be in the world? Absolutely. And I see that in Petra. She's such Again. a powerful leading, leading um, character. And in the ways in which she really perceives and views her world with such curiosity and kindness and such honesty with where she is and what's happening in front of her. And there's this just like sincere vulnerability in the ways that she's interacting with what's happening, that it, like it keeps her alive. There's a way in which it keeps her alive. It keeps her hopeful. It keeps her working towards like the lessons move me ahead, right? Like that kind of feeling in which there's something behind her moving her ahead. Well, in that strength. That strength comes with a real vulnerability. And I'm, I'm thinking particularly about a physical vulnerability because as Petra and her family are boarding the Pleiades Corporation ship, um, we find out that she has uh, a disability she, with her vision. Um, so she doesn't see very well. And so her family, she has clearly adapted to this disability and to making it invisible to others. Um, she uses certain strategies about how she navigates the world so that people don't notice that she doesn't really have wide angle vision. Right. Um, and her family is like holding on to her and they're trying to hide it because there's a sense that she won't be able to board, that they won't take her if she's, and I'm using air quotes here, listeners, if she's defective and I oh, immediately, yeah. it brought eugenics to mind. Oh, yes. Do you, there can are so you, many characters so many edges of that in the story about like 
who are we and who do we want to be as a community? And what is the difference between we all choose and we are all the same? And it is so beautiful how in this, well, beautiful and terrifying, you know, and striking in how it plays out in the story. Yeah. You know, they are able to hide her disability or, you know, they are able to, and even she becomes so valuable that even when it's discovered, her skills are indispensable. There's nothing, you know, it doesn't matter anymore at that point. Well, and there's a moral there. There's a, there's a theme there about her value as a person. And she would have been left on earth to die if they had discovered that she couldn't see because they considered that as like weakening the gene pool, which is like directly the language of uh, eugenics and the Holocaust, right? Um, I, I wondered if that, I wonder about that as an opening to start talking to, to start talking about eugenics in classrooms. And I think it's a really tricky subject to navigate about how to discuss it, how to bring it forward. And I'm thinking about the legislature moving towards doing some truth and reconciliation, owning the story of eugenics in Vermont a little bit. And um, I, I, I don't know, in your work with the Ethnic Studies Coalition, how does that land for you? As a, is this is this book an opportunity to sort of talk a little bit about our history in Vermont? I think any opportunity is an opportunity to talk about it, right? I think that there's a line here that we could go there as part of what we can discuss when talking about this book. And it is, like any opportunity is an opportunity to talk about our history and be honest and real about what has happened and also observe the ways in which it affects us still today. Like what are the inner shames and the inner pieces and our lack of being able to connect with ourselves because of our ancestry and how many families in Vermont are still hiding and not being honest about their Abenaki or even French Canadian ancestry. Yeah. Or it's might not even be not being honest, but have lost that connection because of the need for assimilation um, because they needed to assimilate to survive. Mm -hmm. I wonder about that. I saw that that a lot in Puerto Rico too. Could you say that again? Because I was talking over you. Could you say all that again? There may be a delay. I was saying that my experience in Puerto Rico is also similar, like it's part of the history of so many different places. This genetic cleansing, quote unquote, you know, it's a part of a lot of different histories. Right. In Vermont, um, the movement was like about building a better Vermonter and deciding who was sort of sterilization was about deciding who was unworthy to pass on their genes. And, and that's, we're not the only ones that have that story. I think you're saying, and, and although it's not about sterilization, this selection of who gets to board this ship was very much about whose genes do we want to send into the future and who's, who, who are we sacrificing? 
and what they do with the genetics later on is also super interesting in the story. Well, let's let's talk a little bit because I think for that we need, you know, the 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 United States government at the time is making these decisions, but there's this movement afoot that uh, infiltrates called the collective. Let's talk about the collective. Um, so, uh, before they leave the U S Petra, the collective is often on the news. It's sort of fringy. I think I got the impression that it was a little bit fringy and, um, Petra's father says about the collective that it sounds like what they want is good. They talk about equality and he says, yeah, that sounds good. It's the, how they're going to get there. That's problematic. And so he says, equality is good, but equality and sameness are two different things. Sometimes those who say things without really contemplating what it truly means, that dogma runs a thin line. Um, and so the collective really has this like uh, this stance, this ide- ideological stance that um, we have to be the same in order to be equal. Mm-hmm. And they're doing, Absolutely. they're willing to do a lot. Yeah, they were willing, and it was. I didn't see them as a fringe. I saw them from the perspective of a progressive family. So I didn't see them as fringe as much as I saw them uh, backed by one of the billionaires in the story, which is how the collective ends up on one of the ships, right? Like there's a way in which capitalism and money also has a huge piece in what's happening there with the collective um yeah it i'm trying to figure out where to go next with that because sameness is such a big thing it's like such a big conversation the whole book is about i mean we're going to look at it from lots of different ways but it's about identity and being yourself or being who people want you to be and the collective wants people to be a certain way In, from their names their whole identities they want people to be same mm-hmm. because with with we're all the same and if we are all choosing to be the same then there won't be any conflict they see the differences as the foundation for conflict or the focus on the differences as the foundation for, for conflict. And, you know, the book spans a few hundred years. So there's also a lot that happens, which is something I always think about when I frame 200 years or, you know, I always joke and talk, I, I tell my kids when I'm homeschooling, Imagine if Hamilton talked about it and we're fine, we're talking about it right now, you know? <laughs> so Hamilton did it and now we're talking about it in the Supreme Court, you know? And I go back again and I was like, oh, let's talk about Jesus and the Council of Nicaea over here and how many years that took after Jesus died before he was declared the son of God. And then we have, so there's like this huge amount of years. And bef- bef- when we meet the collective at the beginning of the story and where we see the collective later on and what it started is not what, what ends up on the other side either. Right. Well, well, Petra and the other children and families who were selected to, to, 
populate this new world are sleeping in stasis, another group of people infiltrated by the collective or many of them of the collective are caretaking them and having and giving birth and having families on the ship to get them there so that they can all populate this new world. And as they're on this ship floating in space, trying to reach this planet called Sagan, they're reproducing. They don't have any natural sunlight. So their skin is really pale. They're like, they're like, their genetics are changing. The way they look is different. Say, say that again. They're, They're changing their genetics. They're altering their genetics to be able to survive in a spaceship. So much so that so much so that when so much so that when Petra um when they wake Petra up several hundred years later, they're like, what is that? She has freckles and they call it a skin disease from from Earth. And then one of the collective members says, Shh, we're not supposed to talk about Earth, right? Like it doesn't (laughs) exist because they're erasing their own history. They think erasing history will solve their problems. And so there's like all these layers of how much they have changed and become different just from being on this ship with this Mm -hmm. ideology that they're following. Yes, because they believe that if they study history, it will only fuel their observation of difference. And those differences is what caused conflict. In their opinion, not yours or Nella. In their opinion. No, 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 not, (laughs) not in my own opinion. Thank you for clarifying that. I'm the complete opposite. I'm like, Hey, how could we have none of the, you know, you be you, how do you figure out and connect to your own purpose? If you follow your own inner guidance, yeah, no, I'm the complete opposite of that. It's interesting how it echoes a lot of the current uh like dualities and binaries right like it's one of those ways in which our society oversimplifies the complexity of creating community and what it takes for us to be socially connected in difference it, it what you just said reminds me and and this thing about history in the book reminded me of that oft the almost cliche those who don't know history are bound to repeat it i'm sure i didn't get mm-hmm. that quite right but it makes me think about this current argument in our society about um this notion that we can't teach the real history because it will make us unproud of being American or right versus this other other people, including myself, would view that like we have to grapple with our mistakes so that we don't keep making them, that we can both um, we can hold and we must hold the pain and the mistakes of our past in order to get to become the people we want to become. Absolutely. And what that evokes for me as you're speaking is shamelessness and how shame is socially constructed so it can only be socially deconstructed. So there's a way in which for us to be able to sit with our mistakes or the things, you know, we need to like be in this space of this is not everything I am. 
I am valuable. <laughs> you know, this is only a part of my history. This is not define everything I will do in the future. You know, and how do we reconcile that? We need to be like way kinder to one another and to ourselves, I would say, just to start. <laughs> right. And that the that that shame only dissipates when we let the light in. And in order to let the light in, we need to um, tell the truth. We need to because otherwise it just sits there and festers. Right. We need to ask forgiveness. We need to like own what happened and tell the truth about it. And when we don't, when we. Um, uh when we, um, what's the word I'm looking for? When we clean up our history, right? When we sanitize it, that shame still exists because we're not telling the truth. Whether that's about yeah. genocide or uh, eugenics or um, racism or um, all of the all of the complicated truths of our history. Yeah, and we need to figure out what's enough. Right, like there's a point in which we need to be self-accountable. We need to tell the truth about the many, many histories and the many layers of oppression that we've, um, what's the word I'm looking for? That we've imposed on one another, that especially colonial folks, you know, we, we've, there's a way in which we really impose a lot of oppression in this coloniality. And as I see it, it's really hard to take responsibility when there's no clarity around what that's going to, like, you know, what that's going to do, what that's going to be for people. There's a way and a story in which it's perceived as never enough. And then there's a way and a story in which it, in which you can heal, right? There's like, and then there's a way and a story in which we create and construct a whole new future and we can look at the history while also building something else. Yeah. 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 And so the collective, the collective wants to build something new without learning from history by just flushing history down the toilet. But there's also Absolutely. a way uh, that the collective is approaching the individuals, especially those in stasis, those, those young people and their families that are being transported to populate this new world. And so um, Petra's family, her, her father and her mother are both scientists. Um, and, um, there's a flashback in the book that I just loved where Petra and her father are out hunting for rocks together and they're looking for Jasper. Mm -hmm. I had to look up what Jasper was. It's a kind of rock. <laughs> and, um, and, uh, and Petra's father <laughs> says, as they're looking for the, the Jasper, the rock will tell us who it is, not the other way around. And he goes on to talk about how each piece of Jasper has its own spirit and that those differences make things beautiful. Some of the Jasper is like yellowish or amber with a red stripe and some is grayish and there's all these different shades and um, mm -hmm. colors. And that theme becomes really central to the book, especially when I realized that Petra comes from a Latin word, um, which means rock. And so in a way, yeah. it's also about Petra, just like her grandmother says, the rock will tell you know who you are. 
it's not for other people to tell you who you are. And that oh, other absolutely. people telling Petra who she is, is happening within her family and then also with the collective. And there's something really beautiful about how Petra stays Petra. And one of the many possibilities is because Petra insists on what she wants to the very moment, you know, that she's put in cryostasis or whatever it is. She insists on the fact that she wants to be a storyteller and she tells everyone and makes it so this becomes a priority when it hadn't been to anyone and the world is ending and she's walking into this room still saying this is what I want you to do and it kept her alive like it kept her herself all the way through that's one of the many possibilities well and Petra's mother wants her to be a botanist Right. Mm -hmm. And, and a scientist like herself, Petra's mother's a botanist mm -hmm. and Petra keeps insisting she wants to be a storyteller, but there's also, as Petra is waking up from stasis, wait, the, the members of the collective are waking her up her, this, this, we're going to talk about this in a minute, this cog that she has inserted in her spine, in her brain keeps repeating the same thing. My name is Zeta one. I'm here to serve the collective. I'm a specialist in rocks and plants or something like that. I'm not quite getting it right. But, um, and as she's hearing it, she keeps repeating, my name is Petra Pena, right? <laughs> like I come from, I left earth in 2061, um, you know, and like she keeps reclaiming her identity, even as uh, this, mm -hmm. this technology is trying to erase it. It's a real powerful act of resistance. Oh, yes. And that, you know, that scene with the library in our minds. Let's, let's talk about Ben and the let's library in her mind. Oh, my gosh, Ben. <sighs> what can we say about Ben? Well, his real job, right, is caretaker of these young people. His job is to keep them alive. Mm -hmm. While well, they're plugged in and they're not there. They're and in these he pods. Managing the information that gets fed into their cogs. And he knows Petra, he's, but he's also, so he's caretaker, right? He's my favorite kind of person. He's caretaker, but he's also a librarian. He loves books and he knows that Petra wants stories. And so he um, selects all these stories for her and sort of illicitly, illegally against orders, make sure she has access to them. And I love, there's this whole scene in the book where there's like the naming of the authors. Did you love this too? Where it's like Louise Erdrich and Toni Morrison and Kurt oh, Vonnegut, yeah. right? Neil Gaiman and, um, and then stories and mythology from all over the world. Yeah. I and thought then, it was lovely. It was really well done. It was really, really well done. But then I love as a librarian, I don't know if you know this about me or Nella, but I was a school librarian for a long time. And, uh, 
uh, as a librarian. I also just loved where he, where Ben is like, oh, we'll throw some R.L. Stein in there too. And I don't know if you recognize that author, but R.L. Stein wrote all the Goosebumps books that I could yeah, not keep on the shelf when I was a school librarian. Like yeah. we essentially, Ben was saying, you know, you need your silly books and your romance too. Those stories are worthwhile too. <laughs> yeah. No, I loved it. I thought it was so well done. It was really well done. It would make I, me, if I were using this uh, book with kids, I would want them to curate the list of stories and authors that they would think should be, you know, blasted into the future in somebody's brain. Absolutely. And also, uh, you know, a, a little bit of, of awareness, you know, of how kind of heavy the book is for some young people with this too. Like I was thinking, I was like, okay, so I have two 11 year olds and a 13 year old. And I can see one of my 11 year olds really doing this well, my 13 year old doing well, but maybe the other 11 year old, not so much. When we're looking at, you know, identifying what books they're gonna do in the future, you know, they would want to hold on to forever. And um, especially because the book is really so full of grief that it's, you know, it's a little loaded. Right. The world is ending. There's loss, like real loss of uh, entire civilization. But then also, uh, we are not going to spoil much of the book, but also people Petra's close to. Um, there's a lot and there's not much time or space and there's certainly no ceremony, uh, for grieving in the book. And so it is, there is a real heaviness to it. An active part, because it's very true to how grief surprises us. So it's very genuinely told in that way. It's very genuinely told from that perspective in which grief surprises Petra often throughout the story. And there's all of these things happening and then all of a sudden we're overwhelmed with grief. And there's like this way that for the reader as well, the grief can come on fairly suddenly out of nowhere just because we're living Petra's experience too. Charlie, Charlie's bark came on quite suddenly there too. And I think he had something to say about grief, my dog. <laughs> so, uh, I feel, I, I, I feel that, and I appreciate you naming that this book, um, might need, it's really a middle grades novel, but it might be upper middle grades, uh, six, seven, eight, and not four or five, because there's a lot of heavy, um, talk of, mortality really there's a lot there and it it might require um connecting with um a school counselor or someone who knows about trauma and being aware of um how you're making space for students to explore that grief and and the trauma that happens in the story and i think it depends on who's in your classroom right we know you know teachers know their students and who's in your classroom and what are the losses and the experiences that have happened right now because we're living in a pandemic reality and there has been so much global collective loss 
I notice that there's a bit of this storytelling and this trend that's very attractive to kids in that 13, 14, 15, 16 range. There's a darkness to what they want to be consuming. They want the scary, they want the sad and the emo right now. And also, um, there's, you know, slow is good. I wouldn't rush through it. I would probably slow it down. So it's not like, I'm, it's not as much of a binge read as it is a pause and thoughtful pace. <laughs> Right. And Ornella, what I hear you saying is that it, I, I want, what I wonder about what you're saying is that kids are drawn to these books because they need time to process what's been happening. And mm-hmm. in our rush to go to call it post pandemic, are we rushing them past the opportunity to process the grief and the loss, um, whether it's the loss of um, social life or um, the loss of a loss of innocence that the world feels more dangerous right now um, or the loss of real loved ones who um, or the loss of connection you know being able to see family and friends and people who matter to you so there's so much loss that we haven't I know I'm not processing (laughs) and that I would love an opportunity to slow down and process um, with a text like this Absolutely. And I think that young people, I think that they, if we just take our lead from them, most of the time they can tell us where to go next. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, there's also that I don't want to paint this as a really sad book though, because there's also a lot of action and power. Petra is a very powerful character both in how she resists the stripping of her identity and also how she um, sort of, I don't, without giving it away, rallies and nurtures the identity of the other young people she ends up in, in a kind of community or family with um, as they're headed towards Sagan. And so I don't want to look past just the sheer... Um, uh, um, embodied um strength of of this rock of a character Petra absolutely and I think I I think sometimes we forget the strength it takes to be that vulnerable and to be embodied with your grief as it comes on and I think Petra is such a solid funny she's funny, she's kind-hearted while being really sincere with herself. Um, She's really brave, really, really brave. The book is packed with these like neat action sequences in which she's taking some really awesome, thoughtful risks. And I really love the way in which she really takes care of the community with these stories. So Petra uses storytelling as a way to exactly like a storyteller should, quote unquote, right? Like she's such a storyteller and she does it so well. And her vulnerability and her seeing people for who they are 
and really loving them. There's a sincerity in the description of the characters. And I remember the moment in which she says, so far, I think we'll all be good friends. Like, I really like them all. There's a way in which she can see people and love them and like who they are. And, and that's so beautiful. And so, I don't know, it felt new to me because there was such little judgment involved in the way in which Petra interacts with other people. She builds belonging. She builds, she does some healing. She does this nurturing with these stories. That's really powerful. I agree. And, um, uh, and, and sort of helps them reclaim their identity, which I think makes me really want to use this book at the start of a year with kids to talk about identity and what's it mean to create identity affirming spaces and how do we take care of each other in ways that build this kind of belonging and, and how do we, um, become the person we are instead of the person people are telling us we should be. And, and so there are so many like layers of how she models that and how this book models that, that are really important. But there's this other thing we have to talk about because I'm an educator. We got to talk about cogs. So there's this device and whether uh, uh, um, the author used this device as a convenience or what, I think it would be really interesting to talk about in the classroom. So as these young people are entering their, their pods, they're given cogs with knowledge. It's a kind of education device. It's this mechanistic thing that like shoots into their, I, th- I imagine it's like the back of their neck. So I imagine it connecting to their spine. And it's supposed to like, they're supposed to wake up with all this knowledge. Right. And it like very much portrays education as like, just like dumping stuff in brains. And we know that like learning doesn't happen like that. Learning doesn't happen by, we can't just give you a shot or put something in. And so it both like bugged me, but I thought it's a really great opportunity to have a discussion about, wait a minute. Could we really learn by cogs? How does learning happen? Which feels like a really important conversation in a classroom, a really important way to get at some like brain science, at some like, what's it mean to create a learning environment here? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I thought so too. It's interesting because it was very useful. It's a very useful technology if it would work. Would people want it? I'd be curious to see what young people would say about this because their reality is so much, it's so different. It's so full of tech. Yeah. That I wonder if they would opt for it. And then how much sleep would you need afterwards? You know, like, is it possible? Can you code or like uh, brain live the experiences? I bet there's a science that could recreate it, but... Well, and there's this like sense of like, they learn all the knowledge. There's all these facts in these cogs, but they have to apply it in this real world. Like they have to go to Sagan and apply this knowledge, whatever it is, they all have different specialties and like is knowing and applying the same thing. I just think it could get into some really interesting conversations about how we learn and what it looks like. Absolutely. And I imagined it when I heard it as something that did both dump information and create an experiential experience like uh practice of it 
kind of like in the matrix. That's oh. how I pictured the cogs. So I thought that the reason they were able to wake up and do it had because they'd been in this imaginal space doing all of these things. While they slept. While they slept, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Dream learning, I if only. Yeah, I, I wouldn't have imagined it as a pouring of information because then it wouldn't have worked. The ways I envisioned it was as in like dream learning. Yes. Well, and the, the thing that they don't know, the parents don't know, the kids don't know, and that they haven't consented to is that these very same cogs that are filling their brains with botany and, and geology, et cetera, are also um, removing their individuality. Yes. Brainwashing them. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, it's kind okay. of an expression you. So I was like, brain, that's, that's really what it was, wasn't it? Was this? Well, yeah. It takes me back to Ben, right? And um, one thing that I was struck by, uh, you know, this like removing of stories, we don't need stories in history. And this like brainwashing that you just referenced is this moment right now where in states across the country, librarians and teachers and young people are standing up and parents are standing up against the banning of books. And so, you know, there's this other theme that's very much linked to current events about, um, who gets to say, who gets to say what stories survive, what stories um, we share, um, and the kind of power that happens when we say, when we, when we, when they, when the collective, when people in power um, decide some things go in the trash can and other things go in, in belong in our kids' brains. Absolutely. This is one of those things that I feel is so dangerous about extremism and pedagogy that's not framed in real conversation and dialogue and good, healthy confrontation and reflection. And, you know, there is a way in which right now the absolutes are really making it so we're not getting well-rounded education possible like we don't have it's like we it's not possible based on on the standards at, at the moment vermont's in really good shape but when we look at other places in the nation it's a very different story listeners if you could see ornella's body language right now it spoke volumes <laughs> i wish they could see the way that you just visualized that um there's a, can we talk a little bit about um, Javier, who we haven't mentioned much, but he's Petra's brother, her younger brother, and he plays an important role in the book. And, and um, as they're boarding this Pleiades Corporation spaceship thing, um, that's very complex, they're allowed to bring, they have like one set of clothes, they, and they're allowed to bring like one special thing. And um Petra brings a necklace her grandmother gave her, but Javier brings a book, um, which even in 2060, she says it's a, an actual book and it's rare, right? Because they tend to have these electronic books. And um, it's a picture book by Yuri Morales called Dreamers. And um, maybe we could just draw some connections about why um, uh, the author might have included this specific book as the book. 
Do you want to talk? You, neither one of us have a copy of Dreamers, but we sort of know what it's about. Do you want to talk a little bit about what it's about and why it might be significant? Absolutely. Yeah. Dreamers, I'm, it's my understanding that it talks about immigrant families that came to the United States who achieved citizenship through the Dreamers program, the Dreamers legislature. And it is an immigrant story about coming to a new nation and making, you know, it's like the traditional uh, American Starting tale. Over. <laughs> Starting over, really, Starting right? Over. Yeah. yeah, the traditional American tale of, of starting over and being able to build a life in freedom and being able to have the choices to be who you are. And it is the uh, a bit of a criticism. That's like the, the a little bit of the um, the nostalgia, because it's also a little ironic. As an immigrant, well, I'm not an immigrant because I'm Puerto Rican, but as a person who was born in, in a different place, who's also had to figure out how to fit in the United States, I I also know the illusion of the of this American dream. So there's like that, those two, like the irony of it being the book he brings, while it also being very legitimate, legitimately a very valuable and important story, while it also having both the value for it for Javier and another very sweet character that we have later on named Boxy, for what looked to me different reasons. Voxy with this whole what earth mothers used to have and raise their own babies right 300 years later and Voxy's born on the spaceship right so he hasn't had a mother he's born in this like realm of sameness in the collective and born on the spaceship so he's like shocked at the relationships in this book Mm -hmm. yeah and what it means to have a mother to have a family yeah for me, this book evokes something else. I um I did a podcast episode a while back with a friend, Amy Arundia Ustensen, and um, on the book, um, The Dark Fantastic by Ebony mm-hmm. Elizabeth Thomas. Are you familiar? And, oh, yeah. um, and, and so Ebony Elizabeth Thomas talked about how, um, how books about black and brown young people are usually about struggle and about history and not about the fantastic or they're not often the heroes of their of future stories right and it's really limiting and so in a way this book dreamers also evokes this idea of like putting black and brown young people in the center of the story about the future and not just the past and and giving petra all this power and not just making her a, a victim I love it. I think it's a beautiful way to look at it. Thank you for sharing it. Yeah. I'm also, uh, I haven't gotten all the way through the dark fantastic yet, but I am getting through it and really thinking about it as I am, you know, looking at different books and reflecting on my own childhood literature and seeing the ways in which these stories, like the ways in which we story ourselves really matter. 
And we have, when we have these stories of powerful young people boldly living, even through struggle, we are able to reflect it back into the world. And I love the idea, and I see it in my own children, that if it doesn't exist, they write it. And I, this is, which I, I know Ebony also discusses in the book, is this fan fiction, this ability to like share in these writing communities. And um, yeah, it's, it's part of what makes this book so special. It's the ways in which I can see myself in Petra as a Hispanic girl living in the world, you know? And how many of those books did I have growing up? Not very many. <laughs> yeah, that's really yeah. important. And I feel oh, like yeah. you just gave me the enduring understanding for the unit about this book. And it is, and the identity unit about this that engages this book and maybe some other stories too. And that enduring understanding, what you said, I made, I declared as the enduring understanding for this lesson is. <laughs> I now proclaim. The ways in which we story ourselves matters. Oh, yeah. And what a better enduring understanding for young people. This, your story and the way you tell it matters. Oh, and yeah. then you also, uh, uh, led me to, what was the second thought I had about, um, this other, uh, oh, another lesson or extension activity was writing, you know, the book, the book ends, we're not going to give anything away on Sagan as they're, it's, it's like a new beginning. And I can imagine young people writing fan fiction about what happens next. What happens next? Absolutely. There's such a great Absolutely. opportunity there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh. Uh, another piece of that is the role of the educator in it. In um, helping students see themselves in complexity and have complexity be okay. Mm, that's beautiful. And there's a way as educators and as caregivers and as uh, teachers in the world that we help students do that and that when we allow for this complexity then they're able to be good they're able you know whatever good is to them they're able to be good in whatever context that is well, um, we all want to be valued and we all want to like <laughs> do our piece we all want to have impact right in the world and so being able to have a strengths-based approach to our stories helps us do that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yes, Ornella, yes. what other books would you recommend? You have three middle grades, young people, three uh, young adolescents in your life. You're a reader. What other books would you recommend for middle grades uh, learners and readers and the people who love them? Oh, there are so many. For the people who love them, I recently visited Hunt Gather Parent, which I thought was very, very uh, just connecting for me in my, in just giving different ways of viewing parenthood and viewing our relationship with young people. 
Let me thank for the little ones. What can we, what have the little ones been reading lately? You read this, let me look. I just finished the actual star, which I thought was also incredible. Definitely not full middle grades, but it is a beautiful book by Monica Byrne. Emergent strategy for the grown-ups. Also Atlas of the Heart, which I also finished over the last few. For shame work, you are your best thing. It is a compilation of essays about shame from Tarana Burke and also curated by Brené Brown with Tarana Burke. I'm trying to think about what the little ones have been reading. I just love that you call your children the little ones. <laughs> They're not so little anymore. Let me think. I don't know why I can't think of any of any of the books they've been reading. I'm looking here. And it's okay. Yeah. Right now, they've been reading The Mysterious Benedict Society. Oh, my son loved those books. Yeah, so they've been reading that. Um, and I think on their Kindle, they've been reading, um, they're like into this Graceling series. Oh, those are intense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They um, like their fantasy, don't they? Yeah, no, they really do. Um, right now we're doing the Roaring Twenties. So um, there is some talk, some talk about which books we're going to do for the Roaring Twenties. We'll see. Well, to be continued, <laughs> we'll have to hear more. Thank you. Thank you so, thank you so much for bringing your perspective and your um, experience and your your wisdom to this discussion about this book, The Last Quintista, which I loved so much. It's so lovely to talk Thank to you. Thank you for inviting me here. Thank you for sharing your thoughts too. I had a blast. Happy reading. It was a pleasure. Thank you. I'm Jeannie Phillips, and this is been an episode of Vermont Ed Reads talking about what Vermont's educators and students are reading. Thank you to Ornella Mata Figueroa for appearing on the show and talking with me about The Last Quintista. If you're looking for a copy of The Last Quintista, check your local library. Many, many thanks to Audrey Holman for all of her behind-the-scenes work on the podcast. To find out more about Vermont Ed Reads, including past episodes, upcoming guests and reads, and a whole lot more, you can visit vtedreads.tarrantinstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at vtedreads. This podcast is a project of the Tarrant Institute for Innovative Education at the University of Vermont.